Hello, I'm Dan. Hi, I'm Jenny. And this is Rookie Movie Reviews. What did we watch today, Jenny? Today we watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it just occurred to me that for the past couple of episodes, I have not asked you, what did you think of this movie? Gotta say, this is probably one of the top 100 movies of all time. Fantastic. I want to get a couple things off my chest right away. Get them off. A couple ideas. Take them off. Uh, I will take my chest off. Number one, this is movie five of six Kubrick movies on this list. After this, we're going to be watching Clockwork Orange, and then we are probably going to be doing a little Kubrick side episode talking about all the all the flicks. And number two, this episode is A Race Against Time because it is hot as shit. <laughs> and to get a good recording, we have to turn our AC off and the fan makes a humming noise. So we turn the fan low. So there's very little air circulation and there is absolutely no air coolant. I so, feel it already, to be uh, honest. If we seem rushed or haggard. Haggard. <laughs> haggard with heat. Haggard with heat exhaustion. If we tell a little boy he's a wizard, we might be Hagrid. <laughs> I appreciate the effort, but I disagree with the execution. Rate it. Rate the rate that joke? Yeah. Out of what? Ten. Five being totally average, four being I don't want to hear it again, six being I would be okay with hearing it again. <laughs> sure. that's cold so 2001 space odyssey is a 68 that is 1968 not 1868 or 17 or earlier 1968 film that's a two that joke's a two i don't know if you say you sound bitter (laughs) (laughs) by kubrick and it is this is one of the movies on the list that I'm kind of worried about or nervous about talking about because... It's so cerebral. Yeah, it's cerebral and also it's, um, it is like the movie, you know? You yeah. You got Citizen Kane on this list. There's Casablanca. There's... Casablanca? Two... Sure. There's <laughs> 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey. There's some movies on this list that are just straight up... Like, you don't give those movies a bad rating. Yeah. Or you're a fool. Yeah, and and they're just so steeped in cultural significance at this point that it's like, what's the point of talking about them? You know, but we're going to do it and uh, we're going to keep going. Honestly, a lot of the Kubrick movies on this list could be under that category, like Full Metal Jacket. Like we gave it a seven-ish. Seven and a half. Dangerous. That's one of the war movies, you know, and The Shining is the horror movie. This guy is pretty good. You know, yeah, it's pretty good. I'd agree. That's probably why he ended up getting six of the 100. That's yeah. like six percent of the entire movie pie. Yeah, that's, that's he's, exactly he's eating lots of pie, he's, <laughs> he's got a lot of this pie to himself. So, we should we, should we kick this thing off? Yeah, let's talk about the first story The Dawn of Man, The Hominids, The Hominids. So the this homo movie's... sapien looking homo erectus. Yeah, ancient, homo... not quite human, not quite monkey folk. Atlantis, homo. 
I'm going to name all the homos. Um, I don't know any more than what you've already named. Anthropithecus. Australopithecus. Australopithecus. Oh, I was saying that like in addition to oh. what you said because you saying anthro reminded me. And I thought, oh, Ostro, I know that yes. one. So I was excited. The Missing Link, perhaps. They're Voiced pretty by hairy. Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> Great flag. They were pretty hairy creatures to be the Missing Link. So honestly, I would say that they're an earlier version. Yeah. We're basically dealing with some monkeys. Chimps. Chimps. Apes? Apes, apes, apes is probably don't have the best. Tails. I don't know if those were supposed to be tails or, you know, genitalia. Genitalia. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> That's a good point. So we're watching monkeys. Think, I think they were hanging dong. These apes are hanging dong and they are basically, it's a much longer sequence than I thought because I knew about this, right? 2001 is one of those movies that you know a lot of scenes just because it's classic. Yeah. And I knew the scene where they discover the monolith or whatever. I knew that we were going to be dealing with apes at the start of this movie. I did not realize it would be like 15 minutes of runtime. You also didn't realize that the first three minutes were just black. Oh yeah, thank you for reminding me because... The first three minutes are straight up silent blackness, and there might be some sound that we were just had the TV too low to hear. But I fast forwarded it, uh, fast forwarded it, to make sure that we weren't fucking up or anything, and saw that the movie actually did have stuff. And I went back to the blackness to experience the the blackness, I guess, and it was worth it. I I think the opening song. And this will be something that I'll I'll say right now. The spake that Zarathustra. Zarathustra. The bomb, 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 bomb. This movie's got iconic music. Mm-hmm. The it's soundtrack is, is fantastic. Yeah. And I'll probably bring that up a couple times, but I see you're googling some southern apes over there. I had to look up who Lucy was, and I think, I think she's an Australopithecus, and she's. Pretty hairy. I don't think they have found the missing link thus far. I think they're getting closer with every discovery. Mm-hmm. I I like biological anthropology. I think this movie had a poor representation of what early man would look like. Of course, they can't be Neanderthals waltz, waltzing around because I think these are supposed to portray the missing link. Yeah, and I think there's one element that was both a limitation of what they had available in 68 in terms of computer graphics or props or whatever. Can we talk about how hilarious these men were? It was either super fun or hot bullshit. I will probably guess it was hot bullshit. Especially since it's Kubrick and we all know that he's perfectionist. I'm sure if they're not on a set, they're in a desert. There were a couple times, I think they're on a set because there's a couple times where you see the background... And I swear I could see the wrinkles of the, you know, paper or the, like, looking at the sky, I could see stuff that looked unnatural. And I thought that must be the wallpaper wrinkled or like the sheet that the the background is painted on. And it's, you know, <laughs> we're watching an HD release of a movie that was made in 68. It's not fair. Um, did you know if you watched the 94 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where they're all in those. You silly, can see their. You can see their faces <laughs> and their mouths, and it's just horrifying because it's still super shadowy. But you can see like, it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, uh, technically, an Australopithecus is not quite Homo, so I think that's probably the closest ancestor for what these chimps are supposed to be. Like we're watching a bunch of Australopithecus walking. Yeah, around. Well, their heads weren't. They weren't that broad. I think it's so funny. If you've taken any kind of anthropology class, like, their arms and legs are not correct for ape creatures. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the thing. Like, you can see that these are humans wearing suits. Like, mm-hmm. it's people squatting. It's obvious. And the proportions are so human-like. It's like, okay, like, I get you want to be apes. But that's what I was saying earlier. Like, they're limited. If you kind of skew or give it the benefit of the doubt, you could say... Yeah. You know, these are supposed to be missing links. They're supposed to be kind of human. Maybe it's a happy accident that they can't hide the fact that it is humans in monkey suits. Ooh, um, hot take. I like it. Yeah, it, it's kind of like an ass pull for the benefit of the movie. But all in all, this sequence is longer than I thought it was. I think it establishes that the music is going to be awesome, particularly when all of these Australopithecus or Australopithecus. They, they find the monolith, they wake up to the monolith, and the music at this point is this warbly choir of I don't know how to describe it, um not atonal but discordant yeah. uh like I don't know how to do it properly, but it's like a horror soundtrack and it's a really intense sound and they're finding this horrible discovery. And then after this is when they bash tapirs. Yeah, they start bashing tapirs <laughs> with a weapon, and we switch back to the Spade Zarathustra, which is this super. It's like an ex, an exaltation of, of events. It's a fantastic track and super epic. Yeah. So my my view of the whole sequence here is longer than I thought. Fantastic music, and you know good good setup i guess is basically saying like here is the dawn of man and i think the whole thing of the movie is man is uh not much further along than we were at the dawn of man you know we're greedy squabbling uh paranoid creatures that's kind of how i view it yeah and i think this is a good time setting it up how do you feel about this opening 15 what so I was going to hearken back to how in Full Metal Jacket, there's this completely unrelated first part. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's not completely unrelated because it's setting the tone. It's uh, it's supposed to get some juices flowing in your head about the reality of the situation. So like what you said, how we're still a squabbling mess four million years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I... I do like that comparison. It's one I didn't even consider, honestly, even though it almost seems to invite the comparison. I was just like, oh, space, crazy. Uh, There is that (laughs) iconic shot, and I've heard this compared, like this was specifically called out how at the end of Dawn of Man, the ape throws the bone up in like celebration of killing the other ape or dominating, throws the bone up, and while it's in the air, we cut to space, and the bone is replaced with this white spaceship drifting through uh, our galaxy. Oh, right? damn. Yeah, so that 
that cut is a a very well known. Yeah, there was like that screeching. Was that a car screeching? I kind of thought it was a guy going like ah outside. Madison. Yeah, probably some drunk college kid. Are they not even in town? I don't know. I don't know how those schedules work. Anyhow, uh, pretty pretty significant opening, pretty iconic opening, and lots of cool stuff going on. I I like it. Um, I'm so sorry. I I just looked up humans four million years ago. It's the image. Oh, that would have got me too. <laughs> That's a ridiculous. It'll be in our Twitter. <laughs> well. Tweet that photo. <laughs> Just bookmark oh, it or man. something. We gotta save that page. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just a very creepy looking. Yeah, those eyes are huge. Doe-eyed Australopithecus. Thin-faced. It's what a it's a chimp it? with human shoulders and collarbones, <laughs> which is uh, upsetting. Uh, it's an Ardipithecus. Ardipithecus. Okay. <laughs> okay. We jump four million years into the future. We're in space. We meet uh, Captain Haywood, Dr. Haywood. Haywood. Uh, Floyd. Floyd, thank you. And he is going on a spaceship to the moon. He's going on a trip. Yeah. In our favorite rocket ship. Let me take you on a little trip. Oh no, I was thinking. Soaring through the skies, little Einstein. Oh, I was not thinking of that. <laughs> I was thinking of that one song. <laughs> Don't forget about, I want to talk about the floating pen. Yeah, so this is, so he's on a, he's on a ship. We're listening to, this is the Blue Danube is the name of the song, which is ba da 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 bum bum Yes. And this is playing as Dr. Haywood Floyd is on his way to the space station. And this is where there's a floating pen. I feel like this is a really amazing trick because in 1968, how did they do that shit? Because they didn't have super advanced computers and this pen's floating through space. And then the sky clerk just grabs it. Yeah, and I feel like there's times through throughout this movie there's a lot of zero g or rules that don't agree with gravity and they film it in a way that looks like they're truly floating there and when you watch a movie with wire work like you can tell that there's wires at play but here it truly looks natural and as if it's floating like for real yeah it's as good as inception i guess for 1968 yeah, I would agree. I, I certainly would. It it feels like uh, spinning sets are used and all that. There's one thing about this scene also with the sky clerk or the uh, flight attendant. Flight attendant. It, you just called her a sky clerk because yeah. you couldn't think of the word. <laughs> couldn't think of the word for flight attendant, so I said sky clerk, uh, which, which is, is much great. more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> the sky clerk is wearing these special grip shoes. Oh, yeah. And the I'm mentioning these grip shoes now because later on I want to make a point about it. But they are wearing these grip shoes and they have to keep one foot on the carpet at all times. Otherwise, the zero-g will lift them up. And I feel like they very intentionally had the stewardess 
catch her balance multiple times in tune with the music. Oh, Kubrick for sure. Made yeah, you watch this and it truly feels like they're moving kind of in a unique ballet-like way, moving to this iconic ballet song. So I thought that was neat and it put a weird air of, uh, I don't know, musical movement into a movie. I feel like this movie really leans into its soundtrack and I know I've said the soundtrack is good, but to actually sync up actor movements and stuff and... One of the only modern examples I can think of is like Baby Driver, where the action and oh the my God. and all Baby that. Baby Driver should be on this list. Yeah, yeah. And they sync everything up to music and movement and action in the world, and it's so satisfying to see. And this is just another very subtle implementation of that. So, any other zero-G stuff about the trip? I will say this is the first time I, th- I noticed this movie is not in a hurry. No, it is not. It is fucking slow. (laughs) This scene where we are on a spaceship going to the International Space Station or whatever it is. Like a meeting. Like a boring meeting. He's going to a meeting and the journey to the meeting is multiple (laughs) minutes of the stewardess just walking through the airplane to get the pen, leaving and coming back and it's, it's... Oh, man, I don't know. Like, the models they use for the spaceships are cool and nice to look at, but fuck it. (laughs) It's like five minutes of them flying to the spaceship. And I feel like a shithead for saying, hurry the fuck up, but this is so many times. It's it's a thinking movie, not a completely entertaining movie. Yeah. A lot of it feels as though it's strictly to have... It's like when you go to a museum, you know, mad at the paintings for not moving. So I feel like this movie is trying to say like, hey, appreciate this for what it is and what it looks like. Yeah. But my impatient ass kind of just wants it to clip along a little faster, you know? Yeah. Also, he was the only passenger on the plane. Yeah, that was weird, huh? That, does that mean something? I mean, he's a very important guy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's significant that there was nobody else on the plane. Yeah. It's probably just to highlight how important he is. Probably. Even though he doesn't come up again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after his meeting. Yeah. So I guess the space station has a cagey little meeting with uh, some Russians. Oh, what? Yeah, Russians. No, I was, I was just going to repeat his name, Dr. Floyd. Yep, Haywood Floyd gets to the space station... His little meeting with some Russians. It's clearly like an international diplomatic space. Um, we future. see that he calls his daughter <laughs> on this virtual phone, mm-hmm. which you know is just to show that he's a shitty dad who is work, work, work. But all he is in the movie for is to have this meeting, and then he disappears. Um, I don't know this this whole space station thing. Do you want to kind of summarize the meeting for us and we can move on to the Hal meet? Um, to summarize the meeting, it's talking about the Clavius uh, base on the moon. And they try to get uh, word out of him about uh, an epidemic, but he's not at liberty to discuss it or he doesn't want to talk about it. But they make it very obvious that there is... 
something going on there. And he makes a formal security oath. And I think they talk about the four million old structure at this point that they've excavated. Yeah. Oh, and um, I apologize because I know I just said, like, hey, get, get us to the summary so we can move on. There are There is one point I want to make. That I that I really appreciated is that the moon base the not the moon base but the space station yeah the set is gorgeous oh yeah every I I would go so far as to say that every the set, set design in this movie yeah. is gorgeous it should have I wonder if it won any Oscars he's on the space station he has a KG meeting about the epidemic as you mentioned with the Russians and then he gets on another spaceship and we have another multi minute travel sequence where he's going to the moon and. He is sleeping again. He's always sleeping. And I thought, is there anything up with him sleeping all the time? Maybe. Uh, I don't know because he's not in the movie anymore after this. But he goes to the moon. And I wanted to call out the scale on the moon base. So they land. And he's being lowered into the moon. And we see this big infrastructure. The scale is really impressive. And again, the set. I don't know how they made it look so big. But I was watching this and I'm like, well, this is really impressive. But again, it's a scene where the spaceship is lowering down into the base for what feels like 40 seconds, a minute, a minute and a half even, as we just watch nothing but the spaceship go a little slower and a little lower down into the base as he arrives. It was a super drawn out scene. And then he hops out of that spaceship, goes to the meeting with the people. He's now at the Clavius base. Yeah. And his his briefing. So... If this movie came out now, a lot of people would talk about how it's it fucking drags, I think. Yeah, like think of how we reacted to Ad Astra. Ad Astra is bad. Bad Astra. <laughs> I'll say it. Brad Pitt tweeted us if you disagree. Yeah. Brad Pitt, send me your phone number if you disagree. Also retweet everything we do. Thanks. Um, Okay. They go to the moon. And they talk about this structure that they have found and they excavate it and the sun rises again, which it did in the beginning of the movie. So yeah, it's a, like a callback. It's a motif. Yeah. And once it hits this monolith, there is some fucking loud ringing. Yeah. High pitched, piercing, we turn the TV down type stuff. I want to. I knew about this movie. Um, I've seen this movie before. But I did a tally of volume adjustment. 21 volume adjustments. Oh, really? During this movie. If we're being fair, I had control of the remote. And I am very finicky with volume adjustments. Yeah. So that's 21 adjustments from a very easily annoyed listener. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll, I'll flip things all around. Um... But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shrill shit. It's so... I don't know why it's so shrill. I guess there's a point driven in it. If you're thinking about the theater experience, what it's going to ultimately accomplish is making the viewer uncomfortable. And there has to be intention behind that because traditionally a movie is designed to create an enjoyable experience so that you make money at the box office. And if you hear from your friend... Oh, this movie has shrill pitch. Yeah. I'm not going to go see it. You wouldn't see... If you... You wouldn't see... Okay. Yeah, give it... Crazy 
accolades on this movie. Yeah. Shitloads. Mm-hmm. And someone's like, there are some shrill parts. Be like, mm. I'll wait for it on DVD. Or VHS. Or Laserdisc. Eight track. <laughs> yeah, right? You're not seeing that shit for 30 years. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll wait until 92 when it's released on VHS. <laughs> I'd call bullshit. I should I, ask my dad if he saw it in theaters. Because I know he loves this movie. Yeah. I wish we could do, like, guest episodes. Yeah, once all the shit blows over, we will. Can we? No, I shouldn't steal Father's Day away from my siblings. Oh, yeah, and we shouldn't do it if we... Because we don't have the proper recording equipment to get good audio levels from... My fucking mumbler of a dad. <laughs> yeah, he'd be tough to hear. But that is a good idea. We should throw together an episode with your dad and your brother and all that shit. Oh, yeah, Rob, both too. Big movie Rob messaged me. He listens to the podcast sometimes. Oh. Hi, Rob. Hi, Miss Rob. You, bud. I will say that the shrillness and the aggressiveness that you mentioned, that the viewer is supposed to hear, I think is absolutely well-placed in this moment. So, they... Have a meeting, they talk about this four million year old thing, and then they go to see this four million year old thing buried on the moon. And as soon as they go up to it and touch it, I don't know how they make a black rectangle such an ominous thing, but it's so unnatural and so perfect that it's really effective. When we were seeing the Australopithecus looking at it, yeah, I was trying to determine if it was. Like a prop, not like CGI computer generated image. Yeah, or like they a, wouldn't have had that so much in the sixties. Or like a thing they built because it's Cause so. Where out of were place. the shadows? Yeah. Yeah, it's so unnatural. It and... didn't shine. It was like uh, Vanta Black, but it, it, yes. it had some gray to it. So. It's a really effective thing. It's strange. That being said, the shrill piercing because uh, we learn later on. Um, that this shrill piercing is a radio signal yeah. shooting to Jupiter. But we, uh, I don't know, do you have any other takes about this little scene in the pit? No, Where... no. Cool. So we jump forward to Jupiter, and I feel like this is another section of very iconic movie moments. So we are on a ship headed towards Jupiter a year and a half later. So Eight, 18 months. Yes. Oh my god. Year and a half. My baby is 18 months. You have a baby? Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, people always age their kids in months. Oh, yeah. Which is annoying after 24. What? It's annoying after 12. Oh, yeah? Round it out. Your baby's about a year and a half. You're not going to say, say 18 it. months. It's 17 months right now. I... My baby is uh, 19 months. It's like, shut up. <sighs> Which isn't fair to say. You should be excited about your baby. But I'm not excited about your baby. Yeah. It's not my baby. You know how people always make fun of, uh, or not make fun of, but like tease young kids who are like, oh, I'm actually 12 and a half. Yeah. Or I'm, I'm not 12, I'm 12 and three quarters. Yeah. And then they just turn around and do that shit when they have a baby. Like, my baby's not one, it's 18 months. I'm actually 25 and three quarters. Exactly. So. Yeah, it's like, okay, we, we, can't, we can't call out children for doing the 
10 and a half bit and then not call out fully grown adults for doing the oh my 23 God. months bit. I'm going to be 26 in three months. Hell yeah. Uh, we'll have a rocking good time. Uh, I'll be 26 in uh, five months then. We're still in our 20s, which is like good, apparently. Yeah, the Royal Pepsi, 20s. Pepsi Nestle Cola would tell us it's good. Yes. They'd be like, they would also tell us to buy their products. Yeah. Which, you know, we should. They're a good company. <laughs> Sponsor us, please. Great product. Could you imagine? Yeah, Pepsi. <laughs> oh, you guys got uh, zero listeners and you make content once a week? Uh, yeah, could we give you a massive stipend? Fuck, I want to... it. <laughs> it's like, sure. I would just talk about Pepsi for two hours if it I got us one paycheck. I talk about Pepsi for... <laughs> <laughs> if it totally kills it after, and they're like, oh, you went from zero listeners to active protests against your podcast, uh, we're not going to sponsor you anymore and be like, cool, well, we got that one. <laughs> Any whoozle. So we're on the ship. They're going to Jupiter. We see a man running on a track in a circle. Yep. It's, it's a pretty iconic shot because it looks zero G very naturally. And this is something specific that I want to bring up. Because it ties into my point about the ballet shoes. Yeah. Uh, so, with the ballet shoes, they have to keep one foot on the ground at all times. This is earlier in the movie. And they walk very awkwardly. Mm-hmm. And they walk to the beat of the music, but it, it looks uncomfortable. And when they do this, uh, it's clear that this is a limitation in their understanding of the technology that they've got. Now we cut forward 18 months after they find the uh, monolith and we see in the beginning Dawn of Man, the monolith, as soon as it's found by the apes, the apes that discover it start using the bone as a weapon and when they approach the opposing enemy group of apes, they kind of stand up straighter, move a little more naturally and I challenge anyone to pull this movie up and prove me wrong. Because I I don't, I don't know, it's, it might sound like I'm just making a claim here. So I want to say 100%, if you watch this movie, the apes with the bones in their hands are walking more human-like. And the apes without bones are squatted and backing off. Yes. And now we cut to, they discover the monolith 18 months later. The last time we saw someone doing a spacewalk, they were awkwardly teetering towards their guest to get a floating pen on these imperfect shoes and now those shoes are gone they're just jogging in a track it's a direct comparison of the ease of movement and ability mm-hmm. there's also other things that bring us forward the most notable is hell yes obviously and we got a lot to talk about hell and i want to not get into them right now you know you can pick up the hell conversation after this little rant but uh some things that are noticeable apart from how are going to be uh food tv like if we if you watch us when haywood um what's his name floyd haywood floyd when he is on the space station and he has to go into a little booth to call his daughter and put in his card and dial a number uh and he gets a big tv into the wall it's like basically a a tube tv of telecommunication and then when he's eating on the ship over to the moon he's drinking from straws out of these little 
boxes in a tray. But now we jump forward 18 months and they each have their own little tablets that the news are broadcast on. They're eating solid food that's flash heated from like a microwave in the wall. So there's a lot of advancements present. It's not just saying like 18 months later, everything's the same. It's 18 months later, we've got the supercomputer, but also daily life conveniences are done uh, in a more easy way. So I, I was pretty impressed with the thought into the, you know, that doesn't affect the story that they can eat solid food rather than drink it. It's just the thought of the screenplay that time is advanced and there's tangible improvements. So, yeah. Yeah. That's all yeah. I have to say wow. about that. No, I loved all of that. Um, sometimes I forget that you're not just a joke machine. You're... Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> uh, that that sounds too shallow. No, but you're very deep and insightful, and I like that about you. You're very deep and insightful, and I love that about you. See, that's can't get the all joke, mushy gushy. On that's this the joke machine kind of stuff. Um, no, I loved all of that. I think another important thing that this movie talks about is that technology helps man's advancement but also their destruction because they use that bone to kill another homonym uh eight mm, man. yeah it's the very first thing it's the very first thing so the more we advance the greater we are at declining and i feel like that's probably <clears throat> sorry that's probably the greatest parallel between the eight men and the jupiter mission yeah Hundred percent, I would agree with that. So we meet Hal. He's a Series Nine Thousand computer, and they have never made a mistake. They're, They're computationally infallible. Yes, and it's the Jupiter mission's pretty straightforward. It's Dave and Frank, Frank, Frank and Baines. <laughs> Slut. <laughs> <laughs> that that's just a joke for us. That's a little inside joke. A little inside joke. Um. So it's Frank and Beans, and <laughs> it's Dave and Frank, and they are kept awake for this mission. Whereas the other three crew members that we don't really meet, they have no purpose, are set to sleep throughout the movie, so that the life. Keeping resources are not so extended during the mission. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because it, it makes sense to think that a machine needs to be operated by man back in 1968. I think we have more modern, like even in the 80s, you think about aliens, they were all asleep. They were all in stasis. Yeah. But back here, man controls computer, computer does not control man. I feel like that almost seems, when you say it that way, it almost seems like an inconsistency because we're sold so hard on the fact that Hell 9000 is infallible and he controls all of the systems. It's it's weird that anybody needs to be awake. But um, there's something about these two with Hal that I I don't know how it's significant exactly, but I have some ideas. So we see Dave and Frank interact with Hal pretty much right away. Yeah. And Frank interacts with Hal by asking him to move his bed around so he can see TV better. And Dave interacts with Hal by playing chess with him 
and conversing with him about how they feel about the mission and uh, showing him art. Because Dave is an artist, he's drawing his squad mates and he uh, shows his drawings to Hal directly and they have intimate conversations. Whereas Frank is just like, move my pillow up, Hal, thanks. And Jesus, you just blew my mind. Bah, bah, bah. So it doesn't make that much of a difference. It makes with, all the difference. With Hal. No, Hal is programmed to have a personality. And I think this movie delves into how AI... I mean, they didn't really have AI back in 1968. Not the way we have Alexa now. But they certainly had Isaac Asimov doing his shit. Mm-hmm. And do do androids dream of electric sheep? All of those posturings about how technology is ultimately going to be our demise. Right. And they don't really talk about passing the Turing test or anything. Because I don't know if Alexander Turing was even alive in 68. Maybe he was. But Hal would pass it. And um, I think Dave's empathy as a human is completely apparent in showing Hal art. Instead of treating him like a servant. Like... I say thank you, Siri, when she tells oh, yeah. me stuff, but... I do feel, I think, real quick, Turing was alive because, if I am not mistaken, he was the code cracker in World War Two for the Nazi Enigma code. Oh! Um, so, he would be, he would be kicking you know, around. He might have um, already been uh, well prosecuted by that point for being a gay man. Um, that was, yeah, that was foolish for me to say because, yes, I knew that piece of history. Yes. It's 1968. Turing's already been vilified so for being gay. <laughs> this movie is probably very much reckoning with the Turing test. Like, can can we be mistaken for a human? And I will say, I definitely believe that Hal was sentient. Oh yeah, and had I think, feelings. Not to be too spoilery. Also, if you haven't seen this movie. And you're listening to a movie podcast. You're probably 14. Please <laughs> go see this movie real quick. Uh, don't tell your parents. Well, not real quick. It'll take a while. It'll, it'll take it's too long. long. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Hal doesn't want to die. Yeah. and That's the, so human. The question is, is he just saying that to maintain power? But is it, Don't humans want power? Like, why would a machine want anything? Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, let's get to that point real yes. quick by saying Hal recommends that the system is going to fail, like some, some communication antenna, system. Yeah. 100%. So Dave, while they're having this art conversation. Yes, and he says it'll absolutely fail. Get out there and fix it. In three days, yeah. Yeah, so they get out there and fix it. My baby is 72 hours old. <laughs> yeah, so they have 72 hours to get out and fix it. They do so, and uh, it's totally fine. So Hal says, hey, p- put it back and let it fail. Let's see what happens. And we'll f- figure out what happens. And then they have a twin Hal, and the twin Hal back at Mission Control says that Hal up in space was mistaken. It was totally fixed. So Dave and Frank have a little private conversation. Or they try to. They try to. Uh, about how if they put it back out there and it doesn't fail, they're going to disconnect Hal. Um, for being wrong, and their whole mission is in jeopardy. How does Hal get the drop on him, Jenny? Yo, Hal reads lips. Yeah, pretty good scene. Um, <laughs> this, I didn't realize this, because when you you told me this, when Haywood is on the way to the space station earlier in the movie, 
we see this fish island shot of the two pilots and it's really warped and you point out like hey that's Hal because Hal sees the world yeah through this scope and I that blew my mind he's been watching all this time probably like they probably software iterate yeah upon older things so he's probably got a decent amount of baggage this computer because he has they have made He's not a human, but they've made a consciousness. Yeah. And what is consciousness without anxiety? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag millennials. <laughs> so when Frank performs the next EVA. EVA. What is that? What's that again? Um, Like extravehicular. Oh, when he goes on his next outside of yeah. the ship mission. So, Frank is the one going out to replace this little machine doodad. And while he's doing that, Hal takes control of the ship and jettisons Frank, cuts his oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then Dave goes out to save him. Tries to. Tries to go out to save him. He's dead. He's, He's long dead. He just basically goes out to recover the body. Tries to bring him back and Hal will not open the pod bay doors. He says, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. Yeah. Because they views the mission as being in jeopardy. So, oh, also while Dave's out there, he kills the other three. So, <laughs> yeah. all we know about the three at this point is that they were supposed to be wakened up. Uh, wakened. Woken. They, get, oh, oh, they were supposed to be awoken when they get to Jupiter because they're the pathfinders pretty much. But Hal kills them, says they will ruin it. He won't let Dave in. He will ruin it. Dave makes a daring entrance to the emergency escape hatch because it doesn't have a helmet. Yes. And basically this raises more questions. You know, Hal reveals that he saw Dave and Frank and it raises questions of is he sentient? He wants to live or does he want to continue the mission? What's he programmed to do? Yeah. And... I don't know. Pretty good sequence. Again. He was not programmed to kill four motherfuckers. Exactly. Right? <laughs> That's for damn sure. So I will say um, Dave's initial EVA trip to get the supposedly defunct little black box thing and Frank's trip to return it and Dave's trip to go get Frank's body. All told, these probably took a total of 15 minutes of runtime. These three trips. They were extraordinarily long. Yeah. Oh my god. Dave manages to come back in. And uh, it's it's been established earlier that in 9000 has never been shut down. And Dave is waltzing into essentially the mainframe of Hal and he has some kind of tool and he's going at individual they look like cassette tapes glowing cassette tapes yeah. and he's twisting his tool into each one of them and Hal asks just what do you think you are doing Dave but his Power is limited to the electronics of the ship, so he doesn't really have anything to stop Dave now because he's in and there aren't any appendages that he can use to defend himself. 
and Dave is slowly shutting him down and he reverts back to some of his, we would say memories, uh, I guess computer information is stored as memory, but he's reverting back to that and he asks Dave if he wants to hear a song he just learned and it's Daisy, which this is a pretty iconic scene. Um, really? Because all the scenes that I was aware of without seeing this movie were like, I can't let you do that, Dave. The apes and uh, like the guy in the spacesuit. You know, like those were the iconic scenes to me. I haven't heard of this death scene and it was super effective in my opinion. I've, I felt like I almost could have teared up during the scene where Hal was slowly singing slower and slower, saying he can feel it, saying he's afraid, all that shit. Like, really effective and uh, moving scene, you know? I don't feel like I had any pity for Hal. Oh, really? Yeah, because he killed four people. That's true. If he was a human, he'd be a psychopath. Yeah. Fair. Fair. I, I, I felt a lot of pity for him. Felt bad as he, he was, because he was excruciatingly killed as far as I can tell. But, yeah, good point. I mean, if it happened to a human, I, Alzheimer's, of course, is a very terrifying and sad disease. And we get to watch it to happen to Hal in fast motion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, after Hal gets killed, we see that they were sent to Jupiter on this mission all along. And they continue to Jupiter. And now the last 30, 40 minutes get really weird. So, Dave gets out of the ship when they get to Jupiter. There's this awesome shot where the planets are all aligned with the monolith over Jupiter, and Dave is pulled into this um, hyperspace slipstream with these crazy-ass colors and all that shit. And this lasts a long time. Yeah, it probably lasts... It, it feels like 20 minutes. It's probably not that long, but it's just this hydro-colored expanse, and it, it, it's kind of horrifying. You said something that really popped me during the movie, and I told you specifically to save it for the podcast. Oh, yeah. This scene looks like a oversaturated 90s music video. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it truly does. It's just like the Grand Canyon color shifted or something, but it lasts for ages, and we occasionally see an eyeball... Uh, I truly thought that this was going to be the last 30 minutes or something. What did the Wikipedia article de describe? It was like an era of housing that he ends up in. Because he comes into a hotel room at the end of his trip. His pod bays in the hotel Baroque? room. Yeah, it's like Baroque or mid-century or something. like. No, mid-century is a 1950s style. I, I called this Victorian in my notes, but let's see. Okay, yeah. I think I still have the page pulled up. Um, no, I don't. I have a mojito recipe pulled up. 
Okay, so he arrives in a neoclassical bedroom. Oh, neoclassical. He ends up in a neoclassical bedroom and sees himself age throughout this. Do you think he truly aged or if it was just some kind of metaphor? Um, like in the reality of the movie or in the context of us viewing the movie? In the both, I guess. I guess I would view that as, I think he was in this weird segment of space and time in that he was actually viewing himself age like this. And I think in the context of the movie, you know, we're meant to be looking at the cycle of life and the progression of man and all that. So, I don't know, pretty pretty bonkers ending here. Do you want to cap off the plot? I don't. No. Um, so I'm not that familiar with architecture, I guess, because uh, I called it Victorian. But Victorian England was 17th century, whereas neoclassical is more 18th century. Is, uh, <laughs> is the architecture of the rooms the most key part? How much does that play into this? I, it's got to be important because you aren't going to go out and find a fucking desk like that if it's not essential to your plot design set design this movie got like awards for yeah. set design so it it means something but fuck if i know i have no clue and that old man is dave and then it's an even older man in a bed it's like a fucking skeletor is bald but okay so one fun thing about this movie is that you can't completely hide the juvenation of a face. I feel like it's really easy to make people look 60, but it's not easy to make people look 90 because mm -hmm. there's a certain gauntness of being so old. <sighs> 90. 90 is a good amount of years to live. I don't think I've known anybody who's done it. Yeah. But uh, you see them. You don't know them, but you see them, and they their their cheekbones hollow in such a way, and the way their blood, the way gravity pulls from their face, that's probably the one visual effect of this movie that I would call out as bad, because I was honestly impressed with the way older Dave looked, like the lines they got around his eyes and the pores all looked legitimate, but... This old man looked more like a caricature of a very old man than it made me truly believe he was aged, especially considering his ears didn't get longer and his nose didn't seem much bigger, which is a hall <clears throat> which is a hallmark of aging. Uh, mm. Your nose and ears get bigger. That's just the fun part. Also, more eyebrow hair. I just. I don't know, he looked like a, he looked bad for 70 instead of 100, which seems like he should have been because he was so old he couldn't get up. Um, but the, uh, the monolith appears at the foot of his bed while he is apparently dying and he gets, I, I think it's supposed to be interpreted as reincarnated into this giant fetus that floats around the earth. And I think... I fucking think that the center of this movie is that life, no matter what, history, no matter what, is a circle. 
we're bound to repeat ourselves. Like, the monkeys got a bone, they started killing. Man invented computers, and computers were supposed to be this advancement of technology and man, and even they kill this perfect being that has never made a mistake, suddenly malfunctions and kills four people. I think that was a turning point of itself finding humanity, because that's what apes did as soon as they found the technology at the dawn of man that found them to be human. I think it's an evolution that decides that we're just killers for whatever reason. I don't think this movie, I think this movie has a very bleak understanding of life. Man, that is really insightful and I 100% agree. You know, it's the, the cycle of life. But I would, I would disagree with its cynicism. Mm. And here's why. So we see Dave. He is the one that is chosen as the reincarnate or he is ascending to godhood or something. I don't really know what's happening at the end. Well, if you've played Bloodborne. Exactly. Spoiler alert for if, Bloodborne. Oh god, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you play Bloodborne and you find three pieces of umbilical cord and consume them all, then you'll rebirth as an old one. Uh, but... So I guess that's kind of similar because I kind of viewed this as this rebirth into godhood and what do we see of Dave? Uh, like, he's he is connected to arts. He's empathetic. You know, he asks he asks Hal to sing a song, I believe, thinking that it would comfort Hal in his final moments. I feel he puts that humanistic trait on Hal and I feel that he... Uh, he's presented as a character who connects with people more than someone like Frank. And Dave is the one who is pulled through space to see cosmic truths, you know, or at least the cosmic truths as dictated by the aliens. And Dave is the one who, with all that empathy throughout the movie, is born into the next evolutionary cycle. So, do you think it's supposed to be a juxtaposition of the ape men earlier? You know, I suppose, because I, I mean, it's impossible to disagree with you. The apes find the monoliths, they kill. The humans find the monolith, and they immediately set up this subterfuge to gain an advantage over everyone else on the moon. You know, oh, it's an epidemic. Oh, don't come to Clavia's base. But really, they're just doing that so they can fully research this thing, oh. get all the information, and then once they've got that all, they will announce it. I didn't pick that up. Yeah, so it, it's just an immediately repeat. But then when Dave goes to Jupiter... To get more stupider. <laughs> when, Dave goes to Jupiter, when Dave goes to Jupiter, that's, uh, according to Wikipedia... A third monolith is floating around. You know, at the end when the thing is floating around in space. Venus? Uh, no, the there's a monolith uh, getting lined up with the planets, which sucks Dave into the hole, which brings him on that fucking journey, and then eventually turns him into a fetus, I think. Well. <laughs> he, that's a third monolith. So the eight men, the one on the moon, Dave gets to Jupiter, 
finds one. And then the old man. Yes. But I don't know if that's supposed to be the same one that was floating in space with Dave. I Oh, you know, I thought they were all the same. Because the first that, one, yeah. the first one being from four million years ago, and then four million years in the future. It's the same one that's four million years old. I can only assume that this monolith is a semi-sentient creature. That's a good point, and I I agree with you. I think it's like meant to be a harbinger or something of sentient creatures, but what I think goes against it being the same is that the one on the moon was buried for four million years. Okay. So if there was, there's probably one somewhere on Earth, but I don't think oh. it would be the same because how oh, did like they get they up to the appeared, moon? Right? They all appeared four million yeah, years or, ago? Or were sent out. I kind of view I it as like, like a benchmark tester of, of other... You know the theory um, about alien life? There's a bunch of theories. Uh, Which one, I guess, then, if there's a bunch? A bunch. Um, one of the theories of, like, why haven't we discovered alien life? Mm-hmm. And it's because humanity is a, um, like, a sub-race. Like, we haven't yet discovered galactic travel. Uh-huh. So we're not um, worthy of being confederated or whatever. Like we're too young. Yeah, we're too young. Okay. And I feel like this movie might take that bent in that these monoliths are markers. Like, okay, we'll put one just in the desert. All right, these monkeys found it. Here's how to make weapons. Okay, now we'll put one buried in the moon so humanity won't find it until they can travel through space and find it on the moon. Okay, now we're going to put one way up at Jupiter so humanity won't be able to find it until they can travel to Jupiter. So I kind of view these monoliths maybe as markers of human advancement and these tests. And then maybe the end of the movie when he finds this monolith, like that might be the final test. Or perhaps his finding of this monolith on Jupiter is just one more test. And the fact that he's reincarnated into this galactic fetus is the start of a new cycle of tests. You know... So maybe with this theory that we are a young race that is not yet worthy of um, intergalactic uh, communication or being a part of this intergalactic force, maybe this movie is taking that bent. Like, these are milestones testing humans. Jesus. Okay. (sighs) And in that bent, I would say it is not so cynical... At the end, although humans throughout the movie prove themselves to be worthy of your cynical judgment, because what do they do? They just fucking lie and eat hot chip, eat hot chip and twerk, <laughs> and uh, be bisexual, uh, <laughs> like the meme claims. But yeah, they're, they're, I don't know. I don't know. Do you? If you have any other interpretations, I'd love to hear them. That's pretty much know. my interpretation. I don't know how else to take that. broke my brain. Okay. So, I think this movie posits that there is not a god because evolution is a understandable denial of god. Unless you think of the older theory that god put bones in the ground to test our faith, which I don't get that one. <laughs> Yeah, I don't get that either. But if there's evolution, 
and there's four million years of existence, God doesn't exist. This, excuse me, this monolith is this scientific supernatural creature that doesn't have a will, but it creates or it destroys. It's this Pandora's box of chaos and it presents itself to humanity multiple times throughout history, apparently, when it deems the creature worthy. Mm-hmm. I think an important thing to think about in the first scene is that the original apes get bullied out of their space by stronger apes, and then while they are sleeping, they get presented with a monolith, which apparently inspires them to destroy and then they have food, and then they have power, and they they scare out the other chimps who stole their water, and they even kill one, and then the next time we see this thing, it's buried in the moon. So I wonder if the epidemic wasn't just some kind of revolution in the space. That blew my mind, like... It's basically the more advanced version of screaming at your, like, this lie yeah. is a form of screaming at your enemy until they leave. Yeah. And that That's a really insightful point, yeah. And then it presents itself again at, at Death's Door. Does that, is it Death's Door? Like, is it is it creation and destruction? I mean, it's, it is, this might sound silly to say, but it's shaped like a door you know it's this rectangular yeah. void I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say it is meant to be symbolic of a doorway or a an opening or something like that i think it's it's a piece of ubiquitousness and i i don't know if it has a will it might just come to those who need it especially since it's an old man dying at the foot of a bed and then it appears and suddenly he is recreative into this new life i uh the the monolith is definitely a turning point in any maybe maybe it's saying that the next phase of man is just starting over because we've already fucked up so much maybe damn i didn't even consider that yeah Yeah. like it it could just be uh in the same way it's a milestone tester it's also a, well, good try. Uh, we're gonna, going again. I'm going to delete this save file. Yeah. It's like uh, Bender and Futurama. Yeah. Like, I was a god once. Yeah, you were doing well until everyone died. So, and everyone died. They made a system that killed everybody. Hell 9000. Yeah, maybe. Um, my final note, because uh, we write notes during this podcast, is that I don't fucking know. And if that doesn't summarize human existence, I don't know what does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm not gonna not gonna deign to make any more observations after that, because that really hits the nail on the head. Can we So normally we say, Jenny, what do you like and dislike? Dan, what do you like and dislike? Let's write. Can I offer that I'll make a claim of a positive of the movie you agree or disagree you state a positive of the movie I'll disagree or agree 
We'll go back and forth a couple times until we go to disagrees. Okay. I will say number one. The set design on oh, this movie no. is perfect. <laughs> yeah, that was gonna be my that was gonna be my strong point. So okay. yeah, hundred percent agree. The set design, I this is controversial. I feel like the way and the reason this movie is so well received is because the set design, the art is so is so goddamn amazing. Like, if they had fucked up even if Kubrick hadn't been Kubrick during this I don't think it would have been as well received because it's a very slow-paced movie and its message isn't that extraordinary. Though its motifs, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke's, his book definitely has a, it's poignant, but the interpretation of it, I I feel like is so much, so much different than his book. I've only, I've, uh, I haven't completely read the book, only snippets. Okay. I haven't read the book at all. All right, uh, you give me a, a positive. A positive. Um, I think its interpretation of AI is accurate, but not for 2001. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd agree 100%. I think that the view of Hal as a computer, like, obviously, humans would program a computer to, I think they say this in the movie, he only has emotions so we feel fine talking to it and i think that's a goal of ai and you know being computer flawless is a goal of ai but putting that under a relatable human face you know 100 percent. i think ai is accurately developed and shown as what i think it would be even now do you have any other uh, thoughts on the ai yourself yeah, I think it's a mistake to believe that machine error should be attributed to human error. If this is the first HAL that's recordedly failed, where's the proof for that? Like, all other HALs have been perfect, must have been built on some data. I don't Ooh. think this is the first to fail. Yeah, that's a good point. So, the fact that HAL says, well, it's simple, it's human error, that's uh, just... If anything, another sign towards this particular house, corruption, autonomy, uh, self-awareness, all that shit. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another positive I have is the music. Dude, yeah. Perfect. Except for this, the, the loud-pitched screaming. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use a little loophole and say <laughs> the music is flawless. And the high-pitched stuff are sound effects. Okay. But the music, the the ballet, the orchestral Zarathustra piece that's so iconic now, and the warbly chorus of shrieks. Yeah. Like, it alternates between these at critical points, and I can't remember the exact points that, like, we're watching something. Like, when we watch the monolith be approached we get these like scary nightmare chorus and then when we see something like the fetus rising on the horizon or the first sunrise over the monolith we get zarathustra and this triumphant thing so music is perfect yeah do you have any other positives because those are my two main positives i i just realized that when we watch dave observe his older self 
the way the camera works is that it's not putting Dave in the frame. So it's just the viewer viewing older Dave. So it's this, it's this sci-fi progression and we're just watching Dave age. Oh, and it does that every time, right? Yeah. Wow. Yes. So it, it seems like it's really quick, but maybe Dave has been in this room for 40 years. Yeah. That's such a good call. Just the way they stitch these time jumps. Because young Dave notices old Dave. Mm -hmm. Old Dave notices young Dave, but young Dave's out of shot, like you say. I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out just now. But it makes this progression so surreal, but so natural. So, this movie is surreal in and of itself. Uh, Man, that's that's a really good point. I don't personally have any other positives that i can think of right now i think i took the easy positives and you took the insightful positives no you want to start us off on negatives negatives um i I don't like the screeching i don't like the screeching either i feel like sound design from the 60s you know like are are they limited in their tech or something (laughs) it's horrible i so I think what it's supposed to do is make you uncomfortable. I think it's supposed to shift you out of being a movie viewer to being a movie participant. But they did it bad. Yeah. I fucking hate it. And I wonder if that's just because I'm in 2020 and like, I don't like high-pitched noises. Um, but that is my hugest negative of this film. I feel like... I don't know, uh, egregious violence fucks me up too. And when that monkey was beating that other monkey, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it's really stop, stop it. Stop beating that but monkey. But it, it, it kept me in the movie in a way the fucking noises tore me out and made me want to cover my ears. Mm-hmm. I agree. <sighs> God, I don't even like it when like an ambulance passes by down the road. I have to cover my ears. So maybe that's just me being sensitive. I've got, okay, so listening... To that point, which I agree with, mm-hmm. might be like, well, what? It's, it's an uncomfortable sound. You're supposed to be uncomfortable. That's well done. But here's a here's a counterpoint to that theoretical devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. The movie The Lighthouse. Ah. So there's no, I'd also call that shit bad. That. Yeah. You call that bad? I hated it. Oh man, I would call that sound. Uh, effective at making the viewer uncomfortable and be like oh that noise is bad yeah and then the characters are like that noise is bad but it's not yeah no okay i was wrong i was wrong because it makes you empathize with characters quickly but i feel like the monolith does not have that same portrayal i don't empathize with the characters because of the horrible noise i agree 100 percent. and my point is basically that in the lighthouse they have that they found this noise that is not physically assaulting to the movie viewer but is uh, shown to be mentally draining on the character so coming up with a noise that doesn't offend the viewers like actual eardrums (laughs) but does offend the character's sensibilities is really tough yeah and in with monoliths shrieking it fails and with something like the lighthouse's air horn it succeeds yes i'd agree cool yeah good point about the negative on the shortness 
Uh, my other negative, I might be blamed for being an impatient little <laughs> asshole, but so many... Th this is tough. So I'm going to say so many scenes are super long, yeah. and they are too long, and yeah. they are not fun to watch, and I definitely found myself being bored at certain points in this movie. But the length of those shots prepared me for the length of when Dave was being <laughs> pulled through hyperspace. Like, when Dave was being pulled through hyperspace, or when he was slowly aging... The last 40 minutes or 30 minutes, I was super engaged. Who knows how long it was because it felt like forever. Yeah, and it did. It did. And I was engaged the whole time. I felt like, wow, this shit is crazy. But when they were flying to the space station, I'm like, come the fuck on. But who's to say that if they made the space station flight longer, I would be less engaged with the space travel. I don't know. Yeah. How do you feel about the, the length, the... Too long. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too draining, long. man. The yeah, I so much of it, so much of it was too long, and I feel bad for the actors who had to endure it multiple times. Yeah, because we know Kubrick's an asshole. Are you ready for final takes, or do you have any other negatives you want to get off your chest? Uh, after looking at various various uh ape human mashups the mouths of the apes in the beginning are too egregious yeah yes i agree also they used real chimps they well real gorillas i think which was i think those were baby chimps like baby chimpanzees that yeah. they called i whatever they were it was a bad call yeah, because you know that they weren't fucking being treated right back then. Yeah. yeah. So it's sad uh, in a meta standpoint. Mm -hmm. I have one more negative. Um, I kind of resent the classic status of this movie. Because I don't know if what I want to give it as a final score is based entirely on my likes. Mm -hmm. Or if it's influenced by the fact that it's, oh, well, it's a classic. Yeah, it's cultural meaning. Yeah. I, not on three, I'm gonna fucking say it, I think five based on enjoyment alone, but eight based on the deeper meaning of it. Wow. When you said five, I nearly, I felt a cold sweat. Because <laughs> I was gonna say eight and a half. I'd be okay with an eight and a half. I'd come up, because it's really significant. I don't want to rewatch this fucking movie, but... Talking about it made me super excited about it. Like, <laughs> I I feel happier now that I have seen it and can speak to its themes. Yeah. But I don't want to watch that thing again. No, I didn't either. Yeah, and you toughed it out. You're a trooper. <laughs> well, the first time I watched it, I was like 12. And I didn't understand the evil of man at it that It would point. feel like torture at 12. It was shit. I hated it. I was it. watching Disney movies and shit at 12. Yo, my dad was like, let's watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. Let's watch Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. Damn. Ass to ass. Oh, I forgot about this scene. Yeah, that was Chuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go down to eight. Uh, okay. I don't want to drag you. For, I feel like I'm Bringing eight from and a five quarter. to eight and a half. Well, no, no, no. I'm not. I did. I don't want to say I gave it a five. I would give it a five if I didn't appreciate appreciates it. 
uh, <laughs> for its artistic. I'm, I'm glad we watched it. Yeah. Like second to last. Yeah, so we have, dude. Yeah. If this was our first Kubrick movie, I wonder. I'm already burnt out. If this is our first one, yeah. I feel like um, Paths of Glory. No, Shining. Shining. I feel like Shining is a very consumable piece of media, especially for 2020. Uh-huh. And it prepares you for Kubrick's daring gaze into the human soul. Yeah. And Paths of Glory is, albeit boring, but ultimately entertaining. And Doctor Strangelove, I feel like... It, well, this we should save this for the B-plot. Yeah. I I'll do agree with everything you've said. Though. Cool. So, eight and a half or eight? Eight and a half. I'll come up. I... I it's it. it's too strange to live, too rare to die. Oh yeah, who said that? <laughs> Panic at the disco. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Lady Gaga. No, that was um. I think that was Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> and these others are inspired by that. Uh, okay, so social medias, rookiemoviereviews.com. Rookie movie review at gmail.com. Also, please, for hell and heaven, if you own rookiemoviereviews.com, I know you're a woman. I have found your podcast. You could be part of our podcast if that's what it takes. Do a guest episode or two. I want or, you, or I want to talk them. to you. Give us the Gmail domain, please. Yes. Oh, also. R M R R M underscore podcast. R M R. Fuck. I will figure out our Twitter handle one day. R M R underscore podcast yeah. is our Twitter handle. Tweet yep. at us. And we're going to post the picture of the weird Austral Thank you guy. for remembering. <laughs> okay, also, one... we're on Facebook. Yeah. Oh, we are? Fuck. Yeah. Uh, we don't have an Instagram. Because if we had an Instagram, it would be pictures of Pugsley. And you would say, isn't this a movie podcast? And we'd say yes, but we're obsessed with our cat. And he's sleeping, covering his eyes because it's light in the room. and he doesn't... Make him meow. Touch his buckle. No. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> what a note to go out on. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Fun to talk about. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye.